1 Corinthians 6. Our text this morning will be verses 12 through 20. Just to remind you, we have been going the past few weeks and will be for the next couple of months through a topical series, Christian Living in a Post-Christian World. And so we are dealing with these things thematically, and while we are looking at God's Word and the truth of God's Word, we're jumping around a bit. Last week we were in Jeremiah, this week we are in 1 Corinthians. But every single part of God's Word is inspired. It is the Holy Word of the Almighty God. And so if you would now please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus far the reading God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we come before You this morning as people who are keenly aware of the state of our society and perhaps not as keenly aware of the, the state of the church throughout the world and in America. But Lord, we know that You are perfect and good. And that you equip us, that you not only justify us, O Lord, but that you sanctify us. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that we might be sanctified, and that we might be ambassadors for your truth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20 is a a very typical text. It is a text that the church treats fairly often, even though there's a bit of a level of discomfort in the text, especially perhaps for some young people. 
What I would like to do, though, this morning is to look at this typical subject in a bit of a different way. Because, you see, typically the church will look at a text like this and use it as a proof text to tell you how bad it is out there. And how we have to be active and reform the world out there and get people to toe the line. Get people to act the way they should. Get people to stop being foolish and foolhardy. And there is an element of truth in that. But if we understand the Bible in all of its context, we also understand that we cannot just walk up to people and tell them to change any more than you could walk up to a dead man and say, Live! Breathe! Dance! Don't hold your breath, as the saying goes. What I would like us to see in this text this morning is that the focus of this text is not on MTV. It is not on red light districts. It is not on cities. The focus of this text is you and me. The focus of this text is on pure living by those in the church as evidence of the power of the Lord God Himself to sanctify us and as a powerful testimony to the lost of what a difference the Lord Jesus Christ makes. And so what I would like us to see in this text this morning are three things. I'd like us to approach it as we approach this subject in the context in which it often comes to us. First, this subject almost always comes to us through the world's lies. It's what we read in the newspaper and in the magazine and see on television and see in print ads and see on the street. It's the lies that the world tells to drown out God's Word. And the solution for the world's lies is found in our second point, and that is in the Father's truth to us. Now, I've labeled that second point deliberately. It's not just God's truth to us. It's not just the Lord's truth to us. It's the truth of a loving and kind Father to us. You see, the Lord God is not only our Creator and not only our Redeemer, He is also our Father. And He desires the best for us. And the third thing that we will see is that we must begin acting on that truth. It is not enough to just know the truth. We must act on the truth. The world's lies, the Father's truth, and then acting on truth. Let's begin then by looking at the world's lies. You see them first here in verse 12. Now, before we even begin, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote these words more than 2,000 years ago. And these words could show up on VH1 or any cable network of your choice. Because people don't change. The very first thing he says is, all things are lawful for me. Now, perhaps your translation has this in quotes, and I think that's appropriate. So you have to understand, Paul is not saying, I can do anything I want. What he's doing is, he's beginning with the world's lies. And this is a slogan. This is like when you walk by a protest, and you hear people mindlessly yelling, hey, hey, ho, ho, something or other that rhymes with ho. Right? Somebody's got to go. We all know. Or something like that. And they just repeat it over and over and over again. 
It's the human version of, I love George Orwell's wit in Animal Farm, where the answer to every argument is, four legs good, two legs bad. Over and over. And so here the world repeats a slogan to you. All things are lawful. Don't hold me back, man. That's what they're saying. Why do you want to cramp my style? Who are you to judge? You ever heard that? This is what was said in Paul's day. It's still said in ours. There is this sense here that all things are lawful, that there's some kind of perfect freedom that can be found. And as so often is the case, the world isn't even smart enough to come up with its own lie. What it does is it twists the truth. Because you see, we know from God's Word that there is liberty in Christ. Right? Our Lord Jesus Christ says, if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. And so there is freedom to be found in Christ. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you understand that freedom. When the burden of guilt rolls off your back forever. When you can think clearly. This is true freedom. And you see, the world takes that concept and turns it into license. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. All things are lawful for me. Perfect freedom. But does, does perfect freedom exist? All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. And what I want to do right now is punch somebody in the nose. Who's for that freedom for me? Ooh, not so popular. What I want to do and have perfect freedom is to give everybody $10. Now who's for that freedom? A lot more. You see, it isn't just that I'm acting in a vacuum by myself. We're all in a community and in relationships. We can't do whatever we want, whenever we want. In case you haven't learned this yet, young people, or you've forgotten older people, there is absolutely no such thing as a victimless crime. Every once in a while, someone tries to trot something out. They say, well, it's a crime, but it shouldn't be because no one's harmed by it. You see, we cannot live in perfect freedom in the sense in which we become gods over others. And that's why Paul says here, not all things are helpful. Now, this word for helpful is a very rich word. It doesn't just mean giving a helping hand. It means not all things are profitable. Not all things help others. Not all things are good for the community. Not all things advance what is good and proper. So Paul says we have to think about our actions not just as they affect us, but as they affect others. Because no matter where you go, there are others. And even if you go to the proverbial desert island, the Lord is still there. And what you do affects Him. Have you ever wondered why God's law exists? Why did God bother to give us all of His laws in His Word? Why didn't He just say, You're sinners. I'm sending Jesus. You'll be forgiven by believing in Him. Why the whole Ten Commandments thing? Why the whole book of Deuteronomy? Why the whole Sermon on the Mount? It's because God's law serves a purpose. Well, actually, three. The first is that God's law serves to curb and restrain sin in the world. 
to let us know that no matter whether we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, if we're trying to live in a civilized society where we're not afraid of being killed every other minute, there are certain things that just should be the way they are. It's the reason why when we hear about chemical weapons or butchering of civilians, we get outraged. Because it's a violation of God's law. There is a second reason why God gave us His law. And that is to prove to us and to show to us how sinful we are that we need a Savior. And then there is a third use of God's law. And that is a use specifically for the Christian. It is to give us a guideline, a ruler to go through life by. So we understand standards. So we understand what actions will be helpful or profitable. Just like a ruler. You know what that's like, don't you? Have you ever tried to buy a pair of shoes that didn't have a size on them? And you looked at them and you said, are these eights or nines? Would you buy them? No. Because they might be way too big or way too small. And what happens if you buy shoes that are way too small? Your foot hurts. What happens if you ignore that and say, that's okay, I'm not, I'm not into this absolutes and standards things, man. I can get into an eight. Your foot still hurts because you can't change reality. And that's true of God's law too. Just by pretending all things are lawful doesn't make it so. We try and change what God has established. All things are lawful for me, Paul says again. Well, there's a second argument. It's found in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And actually, I picture in my mind a crowd shouting this in the King James. Because I just think this is one of the few occasions where the King James sounds really modern and hip. If you have one at home, go look at one. This phrase is, meats for the belly, and the belly for meat. Can't you just picture people shouting? Give me some. Meat for the belly, belly for meat. And what are they saying here? It's natural. Just like you're supposed to eat food, you're supposed to do whatever you want, man. Do whatever comes natural. Don't be fenced in by society and pressures and books Be a free thinker. You ever heard that before? Paul has. Paul answers it. And he says, yeah. God will destroy both one and then the other. You see, what they're trying to do is to make a decision, an action morally irrelevant. To say you shouldn't say anything about sexuality or life because it's not relevant. It doesn't have a moral consequence. It's just natural. Now this is a dangerous principle because what it means then is anything that I can do must be right because I can do it. Now let me put this in a different context for you. If, and I think it's more a nature of when, scientists are able to clone people Does that make it right? Just because they can? Should they just because they're able to? 
Well, no. Well, then why is it just because I can take a certain action with respect to chastity that I say it's right? How is it any different? Just because you can put that tenth donut in your mouth, does it mean you should? No. You see, this is a horrible way to go about living life. If I can do it, it's right. But you see, you have to understand, that is what the world is yelling at you all the time. Don't be stopped. Don't be put down. Don't be fenced in. It's a lie from the world. There's a third lie that comes out. And this lie begins at the youngest of ages. It's the powerful argument that you must take a certain action because, well, everybody's doing it. Now, not all of us are wise enough to have mothers who will give that concise, philosophically powerful counter-argument that says, if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you? I fear that some days we live in a society where the answer would be, well, yeah, I'd jump off the cliff. You see, this is, this is where we are at. And it's the claim of the lazy man. Well, if everyone's doing it, well, if society condones it, well, if popular opinion says, you know, we took a poll and the poll said we ought to be able to do this. It's lazy, intellectually. Especially young people. Let me tell you. If you follow along in this vein, you are proving that you are intellectually lazy and a follower led along by the nose. You're not thinking for yourself. You are intelligent young people. Use the brains that God has given to you. Use the training you have worked very hard to develop and think for yourself. We should not be taking actions based on whether 58% of people approve of it or not. Because you see, what happens here is it makes us blind to our cultural sins. So, for example, was it right when everybody was doing slavery? Did they make it right? The polls would have shown it. Was it right when everybody was degrading men and children? Or, excuse me, women and children. Was that right? Should we bring it back into play here now? Of course not. When we live in a culture of dishonesty and theft, does that make it right to steal and to lie? No, because you see, there's a standard that is set forth in God's law and the fact that everybody is doing it is not an argument. These are the lies that come to you every single day in various forms. Chats. Facebook posts. TV shows, movies, comic books, retreats at work. These are the lies brought to you because you see the people that are involved in this kind of sin are not satisfied with liberty to be in that sin. They must have approval as well. They want you to be involved in the same sins as they are. And if we're honest in our hearts, that's true of us as well. When we sin, when we fall short in this area, the best thing that we can point to is, oh, but there's other people in the church doing it too. Other people in the church dress like me. 
Other people in the church use the kind of language I use. Oh, I once knew a pastor that said. You see, we try and find comfort in that. But it's a lie from the world. The only way to really combat it is to look to the truth that our Father gives. And Paul devastates these arguments here in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, they say. And Paul says, but not all things are helpful. You see, I have to understand that I can't always see the effects of everything. I can't tell when I am hurting others or hurting myself all of the time. Right? Many of you have gone through periods of your life in which you have discovered a medical condition you had. And before you discovered that medical condition, you might have been living a certain way, eating certain things, doing certain things, completely unaware that it was hurting your body. The problem is, is that if we don't make any efforts to find out what's wrong, if we don't look to experts, if we don't look to standards, we simply go along in a self-destructive path. That's what Paul's saying. There's also the idea of the common good in this phrase, helpful. It's not just me who's involved. There are others involved. Paul has a second counter-argument that he uses to this All things are lawful. He says we must live by the law of love, not the law of license. And the law of love is not, thou shalt look at someone with goo-goo eyes one hour a day. The law of love is not, thou shalt date. The law of love is to build up others. To think first of others and their needs before your own. How do I know this? Because the scripture tells me that Jesus Christ is love. And I don't read a lot about Jesus dating or Jesus goo-goo-eyeing. I read a lot about Jesus sacrificing for others. And you see, that's what Paul says He says, you cannot be dominated by these sins. You must be free, really free. You must not be enslaved by the power of sin. You must have discipline that is important. You must go forward in the power of Jesus Christ, rejecting what is against God's law, because you know it will not only hurt you, it will hurt others around you. And you must think of them. The question is not, what can I do? The question is, what will be beneficial to others? Paul says, you're not even starting at the right point, Corinthians. You've got to begin there. And if we're going to avoid being dominated by sin, we must set up a form of discipline. It's like a diet. Some of you, maybe one or two of you, have gone on a diet in your life, right? All kinds of diets. There's the all-carb diet, the no-carb diet, the all-liquid diet, the no-liquid diet, the grass and tree bark diet. I haven't seen the donuts and ice cream diet yet. I haven't seen that one yet. But all of these things. And what do you do? Do you just say, well, I'll go on a diet? Well, good luck. No, what you do is you get out a list of the things you can eat and the things you can't eat. And you keep a calendar of what you've eaten and what you can't. 
And you get out the scale. Perish the thought. And you get on the scale once a day, maybe three times a day. You're checking. You're, you're disciplining yourself, not unlike an athlete. And the minute you stop that discipline, what happens? You fall off the wagon, so to speak. Right? And what Paul says here is, if you don't want to be dominated by sin, you must be disciplined in your pursuit of the law of God. You must be disciplined in your pursuit of the means of grace. Growth in grace doesn't just happen. You don't just stand there and say, God, shower grace on me. No, grace comes to us through means, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through reading God's Word, through memorizing God's Word, through prayer. You see, it's actually active. And the sooner you start that discipline, the better off you will be. Just like the dieter, let me tell you, it is very, very difficult in your mid-40s to give up the donuts and the pizza. But when you haven't eaten a donut since you were seven, it's not so hard. You see, we must be a follower of Jesus Christ from as early of an age as we can and be disciplined in the way that we follow. There's a second point of truth that Paul makes here. And he says, we must look at real reality. You know, you remember that the, the argument from the mockers from the world was, well, it's natural. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, no, not really. Because you have to remember what you see as reality is not really real in the sense that it is broken. It's the record that skips. You know what a record is, don't you? It's the flat tire that humps. It's things that don't work just right. That's our world. It's not the way it was created to be. It's not the way it will ultimately be. The way it will ultimately be is real reality. And real reality is nature does not determine who we are and how we act because God is the master of nature. Don't ever tell me that God Himself is requiring us to abstain from natural things or to be unnatural because you see, God is the one who created nature. He is the one that spun the stars into existence. He is the one that placed the sun and the moon in the heavens. He is the one that causes the grass and the trees to grow. And Paul says this. He says, God will destroy both the one and the other. Now, does that mean we're never going to have stomachs? Does that mean there's no food in glory? I don't think so. Because glory is described so often as a feast. Right? But I think what Paul means here is, God is going to remake the world back into the way it should be. And all of the things that you think now are natural, acid reflux, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, night flashes, are going to go away. God is going to renew the earth, renew each and every child of the Lord Jesus Christ, but renew the earth itself. Paul says you have to understand and remember that God is the one who is in charge of nature. Biology does not determine morality. The Lord of biology does. 
That's why Paul can say in another place, in Romans chapter 12, I appear to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You see, Paul says, our body is not meant for sin. Our body is meant to serve the Lord. Are you serving the Lord with your body today? Are you working as hard as you possibly can for the Lord? Are you following through for Him? Do you use your mind for the Lord? Do you use the physical gifts that have been given to you for the Lord? This is really the challenge of this text. Because you see, the world will tell you that you should use them for success or for money or for fame. Who cares if it degrades you? Who cares if it embarrasses your parents? Who cares if it mortifies your children? You should dress for money and success and fame. You should speak for money and success and fame. You see, at the end of the day, all that we're left with is a broken shell and broken promises. Because you see, the world doesn't keep promises. When the world tells you that love is found in immoral behavior, it is a lie. Now, it's a believable lie, isn't it? But it's a lie. Real reality says that God is the one who has created the body and cares for it. There's a third thing that Paul says. It's counter to the argument, well, everybody's doing it. Paul says, well, very well, but look here in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Essentially what Paul says is, I don't care if everybody's doing it. You know better. You're joined to Jesus Christ. They might have the excuse that they don't know God. They don't know His law. They don't know the power of Jesus. They don't know the power of the Holy Spirit, but you don't have that excuse. Jesus has brought you to Himself. He's made you a part of His body. You are members with Him. Don't limit God. Don't say, God doesn't care what I do with my body as long as I study my Bible. Don't say God doesn't have the power that I can turn a switch and as I leave church, God stops observing me. Paul says, no, that's not the case. You are members with Christ. You are fully united with Christ. Because of that, your citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. We are raised with Christ, he says in Colossians 3.1. And because of that, our thoughts should be on things above Here's a good, very simple test for even the youngest amongst us. Before you do something, think as if Jesus is standing right next to you. Because He is. He is joined with you. He is united to you. So don't take a course of action that would mortify you before your Lord. It's a simple test. And Christ has a use for your body. Your body is being used to glorify Him. The union with Christ has consequences. There are no casual actions. 
Marriage is an important institution. Following Jesus Christ has important implications and life is not an a la carte menu. You can't take a bit of Bible and a little bit of prayer and some hedonism and some lying and some immorality and mix it all up together into a soup. You can't. Jesus Christ is united to you at all times. Well, there's a third and final thing that we see here this morning. And that is, it is not enough simply to reject the world's lies and to understand the Father's truth. We must also act on that truth. This is the part that the young people like. Because they get an order from their pastor to be counter-cultural. Didn't think that was coming, did you? You thought I was going to tell you to wear a suit and a tie and be just like mom and dad. No, 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 no. I want you to be counter-cultural. I want you to assert the importance of your actions now. And assert the importance of your actions eternally. Because you see, the culture that we live in now has no use for God or for His law or for Jesus Christ or for any form of morality. It has no use for the body. It treats it as something to be thrown away. It is no use for marriage. It sees it as an outdated institution. The only value it has is in a tax write-off. So what we must do is we must act and act quickly and act decisively. Look at what Paul says here in verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. There are no halfway measures that will do I dare say one of the most dangerous things that Christians do is they try to find the line that determines sin. It doesn't matter what kind of sin. And some of us are very, very effective at trying to go through the Bible to find exactly where the line of sin is. Because if you find exactly where the line of sin is, you could park yourself one inch to the right or the left of it. And Paul says that's not how we're to live the Christian life. Don't worry about the exact point of sin. Flee it altogether. Run in the opposite direction. Get away as quickly as you can. We have an example of this in Joseph, don't we? Joseph is being tempted. Everything says, do this, it'll be good, you'll advance, it'll make you happy. And Joseph just runs away as fast as he can. Let me tell you something. Sometimes, the most manly thing to do is to run away. It is not to say, I can handle this. I got this. I'm tough. It's to run away. There are examples all throughout the country and the world of people who thought they could handle it and who destroyed their marriages, their lives, their health, their communities, because they thought they could handle sin. The second thing we are to do is not only to be countercultural, but we are to remember who we are, Paul says. God is redeeming us, and our redemption includes our body. This makes Christianity unique. God cares about your body. God cares so much about your body that He has resurrection as His general principle of glory. Your body is important. 
Your body is also important because it is what we use to do good works that glorify God. You remember that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. But don't leave out Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Sanctification is critical and important. We also see Paul says that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. This means that we have value. Have you ever lost something that you bought with your own money that was pretty expensive? It was painful, wasn't it? I can still recall the day, I can still recall the smells of when I was out with a friend on a lake in a canoe and I had bought my first pair of really expensive Ray-Ban sunglasses. They were slick. They had the, they had the, the kind of the coil thing so they coiled around the back of your ears and they, st- they stayed on tight. And they were good looking. They were aviator kind. And we were paddling and a bug came by, bee, at my head. I'm going like this, going like this. And I hooked my glasses. Kaplunk. I can't tell you, it ruined the whole weekend for me. Because you see, I knew the value. I paid for it with my own money and they weren't cheap. And even though I got another pair of something else, it, was, it didn't make me feel any better. You see, when we are bought with a price, we understand we have value. You're not bought with a hundred bucks or two hundred dollars. You are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You have value. Jesus Christ has placed value on you and you are therefore not your own. And so what you do matters. Thirdly and finally, Paul gives us this wonderful ending. So glorify God in your body. You are the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just in Bible school, not just in church, but everywhere you go. And your body is a reflection of that task. We are to glorify the Lord in all that He has done for us. And to show that there is a difference because you see, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth giving up what we think will be advantageous. Jesus is worth giving up what we think will be pleasurable. Jesus is worth everything. This is a big challenge from Paul. For you see, it's easy to look at a passage like this and to say, over there, her skirt's too short. His shirt's too open. Their language isn't proper. It's another thing to turn it back on ourselves. Say, what am I wearing? What am I saying? What am I doing? Am I glorifying the Lord? But you see, that is our entire purpose for living. To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray.